Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity we have to come and study your word. We ask your Holy Spirit to guide and lead us as we look at this section and see what you would want us to see from this. We just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. 2 Samuel chapter 18. We're going to be starting at verse 1. So we've, we've had David chased out of Jerusalem by Absalom, and we've seen him getting established. Uh, Absalom takes and uses two counselors, Ahithophel and Hushai, to get counsel. Ahithophel gives them the better advice, and yet God makes Hushai's advice sound better. And he goes with that, that advice, and we saw Ahithophel go and hang himself because his advice wasn't accepted. And I think he saw the handwriting on the wall that his, his advice was not accepted, that David would be back, and then he would be probably tortured or hung in the first place. So he decided to beat David to the punch. <laughs> uh, and we talked about how maybe David would have been merciful, or maybe not. <laughs> we don't know. doesn't tell us. And then we left off with uh, David and his people getting a great gift of food and supplies. Lots of supplies. Because the people were hungry and thirsty. All right, verse 18, chapter 1. And David numbered or mustered the people that were with him and set captains of thousands and captains of hundreds over them. And David sent forth a third part of his people under the hand of Joab and a third part under the hand of Abishai, the, Zero, the son of Zerai, Joab's brother, and a third part under the hand of Ital, i.e., the Gittite. And the king said unto the people, I will surely go forth with you myself also. But the people answered, You shall not go forth, for if we flee away, they will not care for us. Neither if half of us die will they care for us. But now you are worth 10,000 of us. Therefore now it is better that you succor our, us out of the city. And the king said unto them, What seems you best I will do. And the king stood by the gate, and all the people came out by the hundreds and by the thousands. And the king commanded Joab and Abishai and Ital, saying, Deal gently for my sake with the young man, even Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave all the captains charge over Absalom. All right, so we're going to stop there for a moment. So David takes all the people that he has, and he numbers them. He puts them together in groups and assigns captains over 1,000, captains over 100. And literally, the word would be leaders. We would, we would probably say lieutenants and captains and and, and those type of things. So he separates his people, and we know that he's got a whole bunch. He's got, he's setting captains over a thousand, so there's, there's a good number of people coming out, to, coming out with David. Um, and David then splits them up into three parts. And now we find out that David's generals have followed him. They have gone into exile with him. So we know that Absalom is running an army where all the upper generals are gone, and how many of the captains and, and everything went with David, we don't know. But we know now that Joab and Abishai have left with, left with uh, David. Those were his top generals. That would be like lo losing the, the Pentagon staff if America was to split up like this and the Pentagon went with the fleeing leader. This is what's happened to David. He's got the best of his generals. David's a man of war. And as we said, Absalom has been tricked by Hushai to go follow David, and we don't know if Absalom is a man of war at all. There's no mention of him doing war before that. Uh, 
and he doesn't have the chief generals to go to war with. So he is at a pretty big disadvantage, and this is probably why Ahithophel looked and said, all right, you've given David time to get settled, and he has the generals, he has his 600 mighty men. Uh, Absalom, you're dead, you're dead meat. You know, and he probably, and he probably didn't say that to him, but he just went off and said, this is it. You know, there's no way he can, going to be, you know, another way he probably wouldn't beat David, and now he's not going to beat Joab and Abishai, uh, the guys who have given peace to all of Israel and expanded their borders. During David's time of reign, Israel owned almost all the promised land that they were told that they were going to have, from the Mediterranean all the way down to the desert just uh, north of Egypt, all the way up to toward the uh, Euphrates River. They owned everything, either directly or had them subject to them and paying, paying uh, tribute. It was the largest time that Israel had outside of Solomon. Solomon expanded it just a little bit. But during David and Solomon's time, Israel maintained all the promised land that they were told they were going to have. And so he, puts his, he splits his army in three, and then he goes, I'm going to go to war with you. Now we know that this is a problem because we don't know how old David is at this point, but he is becoming an old man. Uh, old enough that he probably shouldn't go to war. His reflexes are slow, and he's going to be told later on, you aren't going to war with us anymore. After this, after this there's going to be a time when somebody almost took his head off, and they said, no, David, you're not going out to war with us anymore. You're, you're too slow. You basically were saying, you're too slow, you're, and you're old. You need to stay home. But here they're saying, we don't want you to go, and their reasoning is pretty sound. If you go to war against Absalom's army, you are going to be the target. They won't care about any of the rest of us. They will go after you. And that's a pretty sound strategy. Uh, they normally would go after the king anyway when they went to battle, but this time Absalom's whole desire is to kill David. Let's get rid of him. If he's dead, he can't be the king anymore. I don't have to worry about him, and the people will rally under me as his thinking. And that's what the people said. You will not go, go away because if we flee... They're not going to go after us. They're going to go after you, David. You know, no matter what happens, they're going to go after you. And this is a pretty serious thing. That means arrows would be shot at David. You know, slings would be thrown at David. They really wouldn't worry about the rest of the army because if they could kill David, the rest of the army won't have a leader to follow and will probably jail under, under Absalom. And they recognize this. You know, David, you're, you're more important than all of us. And that's what they said. You're more important than 10,000 of us because you are the king. You are the one we're, we're, we're looking at. And you're worth 10,000 10, of us. And then they say, it is better for you to, to succor or help us from the city. You know, so David could get, get uh, uh, supplies organized. He could send out you know, messengers. He's also a general. You know, he is a general in his own right. So as they're running messengers back and forth, he could be able to redirect troops back you know, to anybody else who might need it. So David, they're saying, David, your best place is right here in the city, Command Central. <laughs> they're giving David a good job to do, a, a job worthy of a, stra a strategist and a, and, a, and a good general. All right. So they're not saying, David, you just stand in the city and be a coward. They're going, you can help us best by being here. And David says, 
What seems best to you, I will do. And the king stood by the gate with all the people that came out by the hundreds and by the thousands. So he watched them march out to war and oversaw them. And then we have this little foreshadowing statement. And the king commanded Joab, Abishai, and Ital, deal gently with, for my sake with the young man, even with Absalom. And all the people heard the king give the captains this charge. So basically, David is saying, you know, do not purposely kill Absalom. If you get a chance, capture him, but don't, you're not to set your goal to kill him. And again, what was normally happening is you went after the leaders. Because if you take out the leaders, the people were not a professional army. They would, they would uh, disperse. Now, in later years, in the European ages or the Middle Ages, you did not go after the, after the uh, officers and everything because you were all related. All right? If you killed the French, the French uh, noble man, he was probably your, your cousin, either direct cousin, might even be a brother or a sister or aunt or uncle, but they were deeply related, so they, never, they did not go after officers on purpose. At this time, they looked to going after officers because if you killed the officers, the people were not warriors. They were the farmers and the... And the and the merchants who are called to battle. David pretty much seems to have the army. He's got the leaders and the army. Most of the army probably went with him. And what does Absalom have? He has whatever's left of the army and everybody else he's called from Israel. So he's already a disadvantage. David has his 600 men. He has his generals. He has probably the bulk of the army. And they're going to be able to defeat pretty easily the other enemy, and he's had time to get organized. And so he's telling the people, be nice <laughs> to Absalom. Why? He loves Absalom. Now, he hasn't been a great father to Absalom. He's kind of put, put him off on his shoulder, but he still loves Absalom and doesn't want to see Absalom killed, even though Absalom has raised himself up against him. In this particular picture, David is very much like Jesus willing to die, willing to pay the penalty so that we could be treated well by God. And this is where David's at. Don't abuse Absalom. And he told it to the generals in the ears of the people. Now, does that mean all several thousand of them heard this command? Enough to know that that, that message was given and probably went like wildfire. David doesn't want Absalom killed. You know, and everybody, it says, knew, knew this. And we'll, we'll move on here. So the people went out into the field against Israel, and the battle was in the wood of Ephraim, where the people of Israel were slain before the servants of David, and there was a great slaughter that day of 20,000 men. For the battle was there scattered over the face of all the country, and the wood devoured more people that day than the sword devoured. This is something that's kind of interesting because if you understand, in that day, most battles happened in open fields. You would go find an open plain and you would, one army would get on one side of the plain, the other army would get on the other side and you would charge at each other. You know, real, real brilliant strategy, but it's what was done. In this battle, they're in the heavy woods. In, this is not the normal battle for swordsmen, for archers. Uh, it's great for a small army. 
because you get to get get plenty of defensive position. And it says that David's army slew 20,000 of the enemy. Now, it doesn't tell us how many he lost, but this tells us his army was superior. And losing 20,000, we don't know how much people Absalom was able to gather, but remember, he gathered all of Israel. And we don't know how much David siphoned off, but the normal army for Israel during David's time was about 100, 120,000 people. So he's running somewhere between 70,000 and 100,000 people, and 20,000 of them are killed. That's a pretty bad slaughter. And it says even further that the woods killed more people than the sword. Why is that? Holes and pits and, and uh, all of that stuff, you know, running into trees, <laughs> you know, when they're, when, they're, when they're chasing away. So that's what they mean in woods, like the wood area. The forest. Oh, yeah, okay. This is a, this is a forested area they're fighting. This is not the normal fight. So the mounted people are in trouble because mounted, on, you know, if you're on a horse in the woods, yeah. you've lost all your advantage. Your advantage on a horse is to charge. All right? If you're a person and you're, and you're lost 20,000 people, they're in route. They're running for their life, falling into holes, tripping over things, hitting their heads as they're running. You know, and so they, it says that the woods kill more people than the sword does, and that's probably a good thing. Because these are your brothers and cousins and everything. This is a civil war. So it's probably a good thing that the woods kill more people than the soldiers. Because after that battle, these people are going to be the soldiers that, you know, when they start looking at the dead and say, oh, here's my, here's my uncle, here's my cousin, here's my brother, you know, and, you know, all, as they go through and say, these are relatives. This had to have been a big battle. Same thing when you look at the American Civil War. That was a very hard thing for people to sight their guns on people that might have been friends and neighbors and you know just a year year or two before and may even have been literal relatives and you're firing upon them and this is where they're at they're in a woods this is not the normal battlefield which tells you Absalom's not a great leader he is not a good general the person he put in charge is not a good leader they're fighting in the woods, which is not the place for him to fight. He has any archers, any slings that he has are of no value really in the, in the woods, of no great value. Because one thing you've got to understand is when they f fired in archery in those days, all they would do is line up about 100 archers, put a whole bunch of arrows down at their feet, and then start shooting into the air. If you've seen these movies where clouds of arrows come down, that's how the archers were used. All they did, they weren't, they weren't marksmen. They would just shoot. And, they, and if they were good, they could shoot five to six arrows a minute. So literally, you'd be rained down with arrows <laughs> coming on you. They're in the forest. They have lost that advantage. They're in the forest. They've lost the advantage of the, the people with the slings. They are literally hand-to-hand -hand combat and on this battle, David's 600 men are definitely at an advantage. The, having the generals lead has an advantage. They've got the people to even get anybody who doesn't know what they're doing trained up a little bit so that when they go to battle, they're not going in as total novices. Absalom's coming in with no leaders, no, you know, whatever he's done, he is not a match to the leaders that have been training David's men. 
all right? David has the top GIs teaching his people how to handle. These other guys have green recruits teaching, teaching green recruits how to survive. And what do they do? They fight in a place that, that uh, favors the veterans. And when they're running, there's going to be holes, there's going to be pits. If you've ever tried to run through a forest, you'll kind of picture what this, is, what this means, all right? Tree, tree stubs, uh, rocks, pits. Oh, that's just it. They step in a hole and then they fall, and now they're now they're struck dead. They strike their head. They fall into pits and die. You know, uh, in 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 forest, you oftentimes have streams and creeks that are going to cause problems for you and cause cause obstacles that you're not going to be able to run through. So this is not the place to battle. Absalom has set his people up for failure by his choice of battle. So Absalom chose this spot. And I don't think David. I don't think David forced them into it. Yeah. Now David's probably camped in the forest, so I mean he's kind of he has kind of set it up. You know that they they don't have a plane to go into, but a good general outmaneuvers them to a plane and then waits waits and challenges them to come to him. Uh, Absalom, remember, how, why is Absalom even out there? Hushai played to his flattery, and, you know, you're, you're really great, you're good, you know, you can take your dad, just get, get all the people and really, you lead the people, all right? And he is outmaneuvered big time in this battle. Now, granted, David probably picked a place that forced him to come through the forest and everything, because David's a general. David is a leader. He is a mighty man. So he's thinking, okay, I'm going to do this. The field is behind me. If somehow he comes around, you know, if my son is smart enough to come around, we'll go to the other end of the field. But I think my son is going to try to come through the forest. And it, set it basically set him up. And just shows that Absalom's not a leader, not a military leader. He was good at getting the people on his side. He flattered them. They feel good. He says, I'm going to give you all these great things. We're going to be, you know, uh, a chicken in every pot and, and a cow and a plow to plow your fields. You know, who knows what he, what he promised them, but you know, it was that kind of thing. I'm going to put a chicken in all your pots. I'm going to give you lower taxes. And, you know, and we think those are new things in our day, but they're not. They've been used forever by politicians trying to get people on themselves. All right? And so it says that they went out and, and 20,000 of the Israelite soldiers were killed. Now, because they don't mention David's at all, I think it was very insignificant. He didn't seem to lose a lot of people, partially because God's on his side, partially because of the people he had were the trained people, and it really wasn't a fair fight. And, 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 and I really do believe Ahithophel knew that if Absalom tried to gather the whole army to get him, there wasn't going to be a fair fight. Ahithophel felt, sure, I'll catch David when he's not looking. He won't have had time to muster his troops. He won't have time to organize, and we'll, we'll just fall on him and kill him with 12,000 men. Which tells us that he didn't think that David had 12,000 men. So if that was the case, David's looking at 10, 12,000 men at max and defeats the entire army of Israel soundly. Which I just think goes to show the quality of the troops that he had with him. You know, just having his 600 you know, trained soldiers with him would be a big, big deal. Verse 9 says, And Absalom met the servants of David, and Absalom rode upon a mule, and the mule went under the thick boughs of a great oak tree, and his head caught hold of the oak, and he was taken up between the heaven and the earth, and the mule was, that was under him went away. 
Yes, it was, literally it was indicated that his hair got caught up in the trees. And a certain man saw it and told Joab and said, Behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. And Joab said to the man that told him, And behold, you saw him, and why did you not smite him there to the ground? I would have given you ten shekels of silver and a girdle. And the man said unto Joab, Though I should receive a thousand shekels of silver in my hand, would I not put forth my hand against the king's son? For in our hearing the king charged you and Abishai and Itali, saying, Beware that none touched the young man Absalom. Otherwise I should have wrought falsehood against my own life. For there is no matter hid from the king that, that you yourself would, would have set yourself against me. All right? So this man, we see Absalom riding out, riding out on a donkey, which isn't unusual. The donkeys were very much used in that battle. So this is not you know, totally abnormal. In the terrain that he picked, the donkey's probably a good, good cre creature. And he goes underneath the tree, and his hair gets tangled up in the tree. And we know that his hair is thick and luxurious because we talked about when it was cut, he had several shekels. I mean, we're talking heavy hair. He gets caught up, his hair gets caught up in the tree and he and his donkey keeps running along and leaves him behind hanging in a tree. It's got to hurt. He's got to be hurt. I don't care how thick your hair is. It's got to hurt to be hanging by your hair. And he's hanging there, feet unable to touch the ground. Yeah. Embarrassing? It would be totally embarrassing. Yeah, you know, somebody come and help. Which also makes you wonder where were the rest of his people? Yeah. Where were the rest of his men? Was he running away from the battle when he got hung up, or were they running? You know, I just I question on that. Why? Where were his people? Yeah, you know, they're they're running for their lives. Well, I think it was literally he had met his met David's men. They they were slaughtered. They were they were running for their lives, and. Because otherwise, I can't see him picturing getting his hair hung up in there and being stuck. I really do believe, and it doesn't really say that, but I do believe he'd met David, he'd, he'd been defeated, and he was running. And this guy, it doesn't tell us who it is, saw Absalom hanging from a tree. Now, ideally, he probably should have cut Absalom down and, and tied him up and taken him back to David. But this man doesn't do that. I don't know what his, I don't know what his thinking was. You know, maybe he's having a great laugh at, at Absalom hanging from a tree. I, it, it doesn't tell us. Maybe he's decided he's going to go talk to the general and find out, you know, general, you get the, it might be general, you get the pleasure of and the honor of capturing David's enemy. Well, it's like, it's not just going anywhere. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, yeah that's true. He's, yeah. he's tied up right now. You know, he's not going anywhere. Let me just go get Joab and we'll find out. And it may very well be that he wanted Joab to get the honor of the capture. Because remember a few chapters back, Joab sent to David and said, David, you need to get out here to the battlefield before I take this city so that I don't get the credit for the city. There was an honor amongst that the general or the king was supposed to take the greatest part of the victory, if, if at all possible. So he may be just trying to be honorable. He may have just been, been laughing so hard he couldn't have killed, killed uh, Absalom. Uh, 
So, and he goes back to Joab in verse 10 and says, Behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. And Joab gets a little bit testy with him. This is Joab's, Joab is a rebel, we know that. When David sent to Joab and said, put Uriah in the center of the the hottest part of the war and pull away from him so he dies, Joab did it with no problem. Joab is covered for David in other areas. Joab is a scoundrel. (laughs) Yes, he hasn't been dead against Absalom. He's been helping Absalom. He helped Absalom come back to Jerusalem. He was helping Absalom get back accepted in David's good graces. But he did burn uh, Joab's field. He did, you know, Absalom has not been overly nice to Joab. Joab is a very keen politician. He's not just a general, he is a politician. He understands that if Absalom comes back to David, David's going to forgive him and Absalom's going to be a a thorn in the side of David for the rest, rest of his kingdom. He understands this. Now what he does is not right. It's disobedient to the king. But he does understand he is a political savvy person. David, at the end of his life, when Solomon gets ready to reign, is going to say, get rid of Joab. You are a young, young man getting your feet under, your, under you. You do not need Joab in your circle. And Solomon is going to get rid of Joab. All right? And he says, you know, hey, if you would have killed him, I would have given you 10 shekels of, of silver and a girdle or a belt. Quite possibly a warrior's belt, sword, and, you know, everything that goes with it. You know, 10 shekels, significant, a little bit. It's four, about four or five ounces of, of silver. You know, not a huge, not a huge reward for disobeying the king. <laughs> but, you know, Joab's saying, hey, if you would have killed him, I would have rewarded you. And then the man says, hey, if you'd have given me a thousand shekels, I wouldn't have done this. All right? So he goes, you know, you said 10 multiplied by 100 times, and I still would not have done this. And why? Because in our hearing, the king charged you to not touch Absalom. All right? This particular soldier is being very honorable. You know, hey, hey, Joab, I just told you this so you could get the honor of capturing him and bringing him back to David. I'm not, I'm not out there to kill him, and you're not supposed to be out there to kill him either. He's almost chastising. He's coming as close as he possibly can to chastising Joab without actually saying, you know, without chastising him. Because remember, Joab's the general. And generals have a lot of power, especially in war. So he's wanting to be careful. And then it goes in verse 3, otherwise I would have brought great falsehood against my own life. In other words, my life would be forfeit. You know, I would be worthy of death if I had killed this man. For there is no matter hid from the king. He's saying, and this has been said before, David is considered a prophet that God speaks to. So he goes, if I had killed him, David would find out. Whether God told him, whether a spy would tell him, I don't know, I don't care, but David would know. And then he says, and you yourself would have set yourself against me. Okay. No, I don't think he says you're going to tell him, but he goes, you're not going to stand, you, you wouldn't stand on my side. You're going to be against me. You're not going to support me if I did this. This person seems to have a good read of Joab. All right. Joab would have loved it. You know, here, here's your reward. Now you're going to die. 
And the guy goes, hey, I don't care how much the reward was, it wasn't worth my life. And this is something that we need to be aware of. When we do wrong things, there's always a consequence. This man understood there was a consequence. He was going to be honorable and say, no, I heard, I heard the king tell you not to kill him. I will do what's right, even if it makes you upset at me, Joab. Oh, you know, I'm, not gonna, I'm not going to disobey the king's orders because there's a consequence in this. There would be another side to this, too. It would be straight up murder to kill Absalom hanging from a tree. He's not defending anything. He's not, a, he's not in a battle. He is uh, defenseless. That goes back to what Joab did to Abner, killing him because he kill, Abner killed Joab's brother in battle, so he kills Abner in cold blood. And Joab is not opposed to killing people in cold blood. And this is where we're at right now. This man is being honorable. He says, I can't kill him. You know, David said not to, and I think even beyond that, he's saying it would just be murder to kill him, kill a defenseless man. So even if David hadn't given that command, I don't think he could have brought himself to kill Absalom because he's defenseless. He does not have a way to defend himself. And this is something that we see the world has no problem going after defenseless people. You know, maybe not actual murder, but killing their, murdering their character, making life miserable for them, going after the weak. Honor allows us to defend the weak and not go after them. And here we see this whole process. You know, if he had met Absalom in the battle and killed him, that would have been one thing. But he's not going to kill him when he's hanging from a tree. And I always thought this was hilarious when I read this. Because I can picture him hanging from a tree by his hair, flailing around, not being able to touch around. And I've always wondered where his men were. <laughs> you know, he doesn't even have a guard around him. You know, David has always had his guard around him. His 600 men aren't going to let anything happen to David unless you go through them. Absalom doesn't have a guard. If he's hanging by his hair, could he use his arms to get... Depends on how much he's tangled up. You know, remember, he cuts his hair once a year. Yeah. And he's running at full force. His hair is flying all around. How many branches did he get tangled into? And when you're in a panic, how well do you think? Yeah. Who knows what is if he's wearing if he's wearing armor he might if he's wearing any kind of upper armor he can't get his hands up that high uh, he may be just <clears throat> yeah yeah and he could be so entangled that he needs to cut it to be able to get out uh, you know there's all kinds of numbers of reasons why he can't get down but my bigger con concern is he went to war without a royal guard. Yeah. Nobody's on his side when it comes to life and death. Yeah, they're like, okay, see ya. And that is the problem. When you flatter people, you get them to come for the wrong reasons, there's no honor towards you. Oh, well, Absalom's dead now. We're going to leave. You know, David beat us. We, we kind of knew he would anyway, so let's get out of here. We, we can go home, and David won't know we were in battle. You know, we won't, we won't be charged as traitors. All of that probably went down. And again, remember, I think the bulk of the army went with David, the professional army. So he has the best men. He has his royal guard. Uh, Absalom doesn't have all this. Yeah, Absalom was talking to the farmers and everybody 
Yeah, he wasn't talking to lawyers. He wasn't talking to the nobility. He was talking to the everyday person and got them on his side. And he's found out that those everyday people aren't warriors. And they're going home. They're not. They're not. They're not standing around with him. And but you know, I can't even even picture what this would look like in a movie. <laughs> you know, kicking and failing, and probably after a while, just got tired. Just hanging there by his hair, hurting. It's got to hurt. You know, I know my hair's been caught a couple of times. I can't imagine my whole body weight being hung hung by a tree on the hair. Which also tells you how strong his hair, hair is because he should have, you know, most of us, our whole head would have just been pulled, the hair would have been pulled right out of our hair. Well, even if he can touch the ground, if his hair is tangled in that tree, he can't get away. He can't do much of anything. But if he can touch the ground, he can move, you know, he, he'd have more, yeah. more mobility with his hands and able to wriggle out of his armor or whatever he has and be able to get a, get a knife or a dagger up there. Uh, but he's also so vain he might not want to cut his hair. <laughs> he's so vain about his hair he might go I'm not cutting my hair one of my people will be here sooner or later and help me out you know they'll, they'll cut the tree and I'll, I'll just walk with the tree until I can untangle it the branch anyway not the whole tree but, the, but we, we don't know because it just says he was caught up he was hung in a tree and no loyal servants around there to help him they've, they've abandoned him uh you know, he's got to feel pretty lonely at this time. He's got to feel a little scared. He's got to feel a little worried. He doesn't know what his dad's going to do. He's rebelled against his dad. He wants to kill his dad. And usually when somebody sins, they expect somebody else to have the same sin. He's willing to kill his dad. He's going to believe that his dad's going to be willing to kill him. And he's going to believe that his dad wants him dead. Because that's what he would do. And this is what happens with sinners. Sinners always believe that everybody's like them. And you'll hear people who tend to lie... Their, their excuse will be everybody lies. You know, uh, people who sleep or not, well, everybody does it. Because you want to believe that your sin is the same as everybody else's. So Absalom believes, I mean, he'd, he'd kill his father in a heartbeat, so he's going to believe that his dad is going to kill him. You know, he has not been privy to the, to the instructions given to the generals, don't kill, don't, you know, don't kill Absalom. He doesn't know that his dad loves him enough to be willing to even give him, give him the kingdom. If that's, if that's God's will, David's willing to give Absalom the kingdom and just live in exile because he doesn't want his son hurt. He also understands the consequences for sin, and he also understands part of this is his fault. The curse that he has on his family because of sleeping with Ab, uh, Absalom, yeah, <laughs> sleeping, sleeping with uh, Bathsheba and murdering Uriah God said, the sword won't depart from your, from your home. And so he's looking at this and saying, it's my fault anyway. God, if this is part of my problem, I will live in exile. You just let, will let Absalom run, you know, have the kingdom. He doesn't want a civil war. He doesn't want his people being hurt. And he doesn't want his son being hurt. And he's willing to give up everything rather than take up his rights. And that is what God asks us to do at times. God is not asking us to, to go out to war to kill everybody that offends us and to assassinate characters and to battle against them. God says, let me be your defense. This doesn't mean there's not time to pick up and, and say, I'm going to defend myself. Paul, rather than be executed by 
the Palestinian leader said, hey, I'm a Roman citizen, I, I appeal to Caesar, and was sent to Caesar. There are times when Christians should go ahead and go to court, but we need to be able to say, God, you need to be lifted up and you need to be honored in the process of doing this. You know, Paul's whole desire was not that he was gonna be forgiven. He fully expected to die at Caesar's hands. He just wanted to preach the gospel to Caesar. Even though Caesar, he expected Caesar to kill him, he just wanted to give Caesar the gospel message. And he did give it to Caesar, but he was able to give it to lots of other people in Caesar's household and got a lot of them saved. And, you know, is that our purpose? When we go to defend ourselves, is our purpose to defend ourselves or to glorify God? If we're not glorifying God, we better not be defending ourselves. And this is some of my problems sometimes when these Christians go to court to defend themselves rather than to defend the rights of a people. And you can hear it sometimes in their voices. Some of them are very honest and, and just want to you know, challenge the right of us to live for God. Some are very arrogant. You know, my rights have been violated and I'm going to stand up and fight against it. And this is where a real careful line has to be drawn. If I'm defending myself, it's wrong. If I'm defending the rights that God has given us to, to live for him, it'll be okay. Paul did that. You know, David is saying, I'm willing to give up. If God wants me to be king, he'll make me king and he'll take, he'll take Absalom out just like he did Saul. If God doesn't want me to, I'm willing to live in exile if that's what God wants. Because David realized he has a curse over him and his family and he's going, I'm willing to do whatever it is. He's almost like uh, Job. You know, I will take evil. If God wants, I will take God, the good that God gives me. I'll take the evil that God gives me because God is in charge. He understands that. Joab, on the other hand, is not going to understand that. <laughs> Verse 14, Then said Joab, I may not tarry thus with you. And he took three darts in his hand and thrust them through the heart of Absalom, while he was yet alive in the midst of the oak, and ten young men that bared Joab's armor compassed about him and smote Absalom and slew him. And Joab blew the trumpet, and the people returned from pursuing after Israel, for Joab held back the people. And they took Absalom and cast him into a great pit in the wood, and laid a very great heap of stones upon him, and all Israel fled, everyone to his tent. So Joab comes in, and takes three darts, javelins, and some kind of thrusting weapon. Uh, it could be translated dart or javelin. I really believe it was more like javelins or lances. He thrusts it, says through his heart, but apparently he doesn't kill Absalom with three, with three blows, which is kind of amazing. This guy is a leader. He knows how to kill people. And three blows on, on Absalom don't, get, don't do the job. And it says 10 of his armor bearers. I, I, I kind of find it interesting that uh, Joab had 10 armor bearers. <laughs> That's a lot of people to bear his armor. They come around and they keep striking Absalom until he's dead. Uh, if Absalom actually was struck through the heart by the javelins, I think he was dead and these guys were just beating him for the, for the fun of it. Or they wanted him to suffer. They wanted him to really suffer. Yeah. And that could be, Joab may want him to suffer. You've made me leave the palace. I've had to live out here in the middle of nowhere, uh, away from the palace for no reason. I want you to suffer. It could be that he has an ax to grind against him. He did burn his fields. 
all right? Uh, and he is brutalized. Again, what does the world do to us when they go after us? They, they go after the weak, they brutalize the, the weak. And here they're brutalized, and it says, Joab blows the trumpet of the shofar. He's calling for retreat. Quit fighting. Come back, the battle is over. And it says that all the people of Israel kept running until they got to their tents. They didn't even go back to Jerusalem. They did not go back to, to anywhere. They went home. <laughs> maybe, their, maybe their tents when they started out, but I think, I think by the sound of this, they went home. You know, uh, they have been soundly routed. They know that David is now going to be king again because Absalom has been defeated. You know, doesn't have, the army has not been able to go, and they run. They run for all that they're worth back to their, back to their tents, and they take the body of Absalom and throw him in a pit in the woods, which just tells us why there's more people dying in the woods. This is not even ground woods. This is full of pits and snares, and they throw a bunch of rocks over him. Absalom's grave is a pit, of, a hole in the ground covered with rocks. This is not the way the Israelite people were buried. They were put into caves, and they were anointed and, and, and covered, and after their flesh had been uh, rotted away after about a year, they would take up the bones, put them in a box, and then bury the box. They are disrespecting Absalom all the way here. Absalom's the king's son. He deserves a royal uh, funeral, a great honor, and Joab disrespects him. Disrespects him enough, anyway, he kills him when he was told not to, beats him and, and cruelly on, on, his, on his death, and then throws him in a pit instead of putting him in a cave and, and giving him a proper burial. All of this is done without David's permission. Matter of fact, all of this is done with David's expressed opposite command. You know, this goes to show us how self-reliant Joab is. He thinks he can get away with anything. And apparently he can, because David's not going to punish him severely for this. And Joab all the way through has been getting away with bad things. He's not a nice man. We've already talked about that. He's gotten away with enough bad things that he thinks he can get away with even this one. I think this is the one that finally puts the nail in, in his coffin as far as David's concerned. He's, he's very powerful. He's very politically astute. David cannot get rid of him without making a huge problem with the kingdom. Yes. The whole well, the whole family is because remember, the, these guys are related to David. Yeah. All right. They are the children of David's sister. So they're, they're family, and a lot of times people were promoted because they were family. But they've also have been around for a long time. He has proven himself to be a general. He thinks he can get away with it because I'm family. He knows it's politically, he knows it's the political correct thing to do, get rid of Absalom. And he's willing to take that chance that David is not going to punish him, or even if David punishes him, he's establishing David's kingdom. So he's looking at a lot of factors. You know, he knows David has commanded him not to hurt jo Absalom, but he knows that if Absalom lives, he's going to be a problem. So he wants to kill, you know, he decides the best thing to do is kill, kill Absalom. And he, he's getting older as well. David is getting older, he's getting older. So probably looking at the fact I'm, I'm going to die sooner or later as a general, I might as well do this because if David's really want to kill me, he's going to kill me. 
I think he's being very pragmatic about it. He says, I'm going to protect the kingdom. And by the way, I've got a nice little niche with David. I have David's ear. I can say what I want to David. And you know, he's, he's hoping he's going to get away with it. And we're going to find out that he does. So he, he plays a political calculated risk. He also has a lot of dirt on David. Huh? He's got a lot of dirt on he's, David, yeah, but David's the king. I mean, who, who are you going to go to? I'm going to go to the Supreme Court. David says, I'm in the Supreme Court. What would you like to say? Yeah, uh, well, there's no place else. All he can do is really open the dirt to the people and make the people, but the, the people aren't going to be able to get rid of David either. He's king. So, yes, he has a lot of dirt on David, but there's not a lot that he can do with it. Yeah, he can make the people not really care for David. Maybe he could get a coup where he becomes king, but I don't think that's what he wants. There are a lot of people that don't want the top position. They like to be the one advising the top position, uh, having to ear the top person so that they take the heat for bad decisions, and all you get to do is sit back. I've always loved to be in number two position. I don't get to stay there very often. I always get pushed into number one, but I've always enjoyed number two. You know, it's a, it's a fun position. You don't have any responsibility for things going wrong, and all you have to do is what you're told and, and influence what they say sometimes. It's a great place to be. That may be where Joab's at. You know, hey, I like being number, I like having David's ear. I like being able to advise David and, and try to help guide him. Hey, he doesn't go my way all the time, but you know, I'm politically astute. I, I know how to put my arguments together. And he's that type of man. He knows how to put the argument together to, to, to make a position. All right, verse 18. Now Absalom in his lifetime had taken and reared up for himself a pillar which was in the king's dale, for he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. And he called the pillar after his own name, and it is called unto this day Absalom's place. So Absalom didn't have any children. So what did he do? He put up a monument, a memorial. It says pillar, but we would, we would think of it like a statue. Now, it was probably more literally a pillar, but we would think of it as a statue. He was going to go, here is my legacy. I want people to remember me forever, and this, this statue, this pillar, this memorial pillar is going to be where people are going to remember me. And he sets it up, and he had no children, which is pretty sad because we know he's fairly old. He's good looking. He had children. They apparently all died. Because this is, remember, we talked about this back before when it, when it said it had children, and I said, this is where they, make a, where they say there's a contradiction because he's, it says he has some children, then at the very end here it says he has none. He may have killed his own children. All right? Many kings did kill their children because they were afraid of their children trying to take their place. And he is not real sure of his position. He has bribed people, he has, he has flattered people, so he may have killed his own children. I don't know that for a fact, but it is not uncommon. They may have gotten sick. All right? Sickness was rampant on, on, on young children in those days. Because they don't mention it. Yeah, they, they, after that one reference that he had some children, now it says he does not have children. 1427, they kids. Right. One verse. one verse says he has children, now we come to this place. And so what happens? Somehow they died. Yep. How they died, we don't know how they died. It could be that he killed them. It could be that they got sick. It could be that they were in this battle with him. I don't know. Uh, you know, I don't think he's old enough to have his children in the battle with him necessarily. I think that they probably died of sickness or he killed them. 
uh, because he is not a very confident king, so he might have said, I'm not going to have any of my children come up and take my... I took it from, I took it from my dad. My, my children might take it from me. I'm just going to kill them and be preemptive. And that is the way of the world's kings oftentimes. They would kill their own children. Herod killed all of his children. Okay? He killed his brothers and, his, and their children just to make sure nobody could come and take his kingdom away. He, he, he said it was better to be a pig in, in Herod's uh, household than to be a f- family member because he killed less of the animals for food than he killed his children. So anything is possible. Why did he not have children? We don't know. It did say earlier that he had some children. At this point, they're dead. Why? We don't know. They're, they're dead. And he says, all I've got is this memorial stone. And David lets it stay. This, is, this belongs to my son. Um, Absalom, my son. Not, not my son, but one of my sons. Verse 18, now Absalom, whoops, uh, verse 19. Then said Ahiazah, the son of Zadok, let me now run and bear the king tidings, how that the Lord hath avenged him of his enemies. And Jerob said unto him, you shall not bear tidings this day, but you shall bear tidings another day. But this day you shall bear no tidings, because the king's son is dead. Then said Jerob to Gushi, go tell the king what you have seen. And Gushi bowed himself unto Joab and ran. Then said Ahiazah to the, the son of Zadok, yet again to Joab, but howsoever let me, I pray you, also run after Cushi. And Joab said, wherefore will you run, my son, seeing that you have no tidings ready? But howsoever said he, let me run, and he said unto him, run. Then Ahizah ran by the way of the plain and overran Cushi. And David sat between the two gates, and the watchman went, went up on the roof over the gate unto the wall, and lifted up his eyes and looked, and beheld a man running alone. And the watchman cried and told the king, and the king said, If he is alone, there is tidings in his mouth. And he came apace and drew near, and the watchman saw another man running, and said, The watchman called him to the porter and said, Behold, another man runs alone. And the king said, he also brings tidings. And verse 27, And the watchman said, I think that the running of the foremost is like the running of Ahimazel, the son of Zadok. And the king said, he is a good man and comes with good tidings. So we'll stop there for a moment. We have this process going on with Ahimazel, who is the son of the prophet, or the priest rather, he goes to Joab and says, let me go tell David the good news. The battle's over. His enemies, his enemies are dead. He doesn't seem to know that this is not going to be good news. Now, David is not going to like to hear that Absalom's died. And it may be possible, because he never mentions it later on, that Absalom's dead. He may not know that Absalom's dead. He just knows the battle's over and Israel has been defeated. All right? He says, let me go tell David that the battle's over and that there's good news. His enemies are, have been defeated. Joab says, no, you shall not go today because you don't have any good tidings for the king. His son is dead. In other words, Joab is trying to be a little cagey here, as we see in the next, next verse, because he sends his own man out there to give tidings, all right, with the right wording on, on how he wants it, wants it presented. He doesn't want the priest son to be the one to give David tidings because one thing is he's not going to say what Joab wants him to say okay Joab's going to want him to say certain things so Joab calls for Cushi one of his servants that says 
You go tell the king what you've seen. What has he seen? I don't know if he's seen that uh, Absalom has been killed, but this is what he's going to tell him, that Absalom is dead. Later on, we didn't read far enough on that. And he starts running. And Ahimezaz goes to, to Joab and says, let me go give David some tidings too. I, wanna, I want to give the good news to David. You know, doesn't say I was his spy and all of that, you know, but I want to go tell David what's been going on. Joab may be a little worried about that because he doesn't know what this man's going to say. He doesn't know if this man knows exactly how Absalom died. But he doesn't want, he doesn't want an honest man giving the report to David. <laughs> and after he feels that Cushai has a big enough lead, he first tells him, says, you know, well, why do you want to do this? Well, you, know, you, don't, you don't have a message ready. You know, I, haven't, I haven't prepared a message to give you to give to David, so why do you want to go? And he goes, I want to run. And he figures that his runner has got a long enough lead to not get caught, so he goes ahead and lets the priest's son run after him. Now, the priest's son obviously is a track star, <laughs> or a marathon star. Uh, he outruns <laughs> the, lead, the other man who had a head start. All right? And I just kind of David has men on the walls. He's looking and waiting for a message. He wants to know how the battle's going, and he's really wanting to know who has captured Absalom. Okay, or did Absalom get away? You know, he's looking for good news. And in the, poor, the man on the watchtower is looking over, and he says, I see somebody running. Now, this guy had to have been running pretty good to draw and kicking up some dust and you know, drawing attention to him. And if you know what it's like out of the desert, I mean, just walking across the desert can kick up dust. If you're running across the desert area, you're going to kick up dust. And the watchman said, you know, he's alone. And David says, oh, good. Good news. Good news, because they only sent one man. If it was bad news that they were losing, they would have sent a group of people just to protect the messenger. He says, good news is coming my way. And then he says, oh, there's another man coming. I see another runner. And they said, oh, he, got, he has news also. And I don't know what was distinctive about Ahaziah's run, but the guy up there on the tower knew him well enough to know his run. Whether it was just how fast he was running, because obviously he's fast, or if there was a gate or something to it, we don't know what it is, but he looked and says, I think that's Ahidah Zadok's son. Yeah, he was a star. You know, they, they watched him in the they watched him in the, uh, the the Olympics or whatever the equivalent was. The Olympics haven't been invited invented yet, but you know, there was some kind of contest where they knew this guy's running style. So we're looking at that. And verse twenty-eight. And Ahaziah called and said unto the king, "All is well." And he fell down to the earth upon his face and and before the king and said, Blessed be the Lord your God, which has delivered up the men that lifted up their hand against my lord the king. And the king said, Is the young man Absalom safe? And Ahazah answered, When Joab sent the king's servant and me your servant, I saw a great tumult, but I knew not what it was. So he does not know what's happened. All he knows is that Israel's been routed. The, the army of Israel's been routed, and David is now victorious in his first battle in exile. 
So, and he's, he said he fell down. I don't know if he was falling down in worship or if he was just falling down because I'm dead tired. <laughs> I have just run my marathon and I am tired. He goes, I saw, and what he says is, I saw a great tumult. Something was going on. I don't know what was going on, but I was sent out. And behold, Cushi came, and Cushi said, Tidings, my lord the king, for the Lord hath avenged you this day of all them that rose up against you. And the king said unto Cushi, Is the young man Absalom safe? And Cushi answered, The enemies of my lord the king and all that rise up against you to do you hurt be as this young man. He, for some reason, thinks he's given the king good news. All right? You know, basically, he has just said, your son's dead, and I hope all your other enemies are just like your son. You know, he didn't come right out and say it, but this is what he said by this very flower, flowery language. Is he some exception to the group that doesn't understand what was told to the, to the generals? Don't kill Absalom? He's coming in like, I have great news for you. Do you remember way back at the beginning of David's reign, the guys that came in and said, we have good news for you. Saul is dead. They were executed. This guy doesn't know David's history, doesn't appear to know what David, David told the generals. He thinks he's bringing David good news. Yeah, your, your, your enemies are all dead, and by the way, that includes your son. All your enemies are dead. Yeah, it doesn't say that he did in this case. But he's coming in, and he's going, good news, king. Your enemies are dead, and so is your son. This man has the world's point of view. Your enemy is raised up against you, and I know it was your son, but now he's dead. Rejoice. And David's thinking, no, I didn't want my son dead. They don't understand David's heart, which is the heart after God. And all these people that are having worldly attitudes just don't understand it. And even with us as Christians, sometimes people come up and, good news, this person has really, really suffered. I had an individual one time that really had abused me, and I left his employment, and the guy came up to me, and I go, you, you need to hear this. This, is, this has happened to him, this, 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 and this. And I'm going, that does not make me happy. He goes, but he, but he did you wrong. And I'm going, yeah, but that doesn't mean that's what I wanted to see happen to him. I am not happy that he suffered. David does not rejoice. Matter of fact, in verse 30 says, and the king was much moved and went up to his chamber above the gate and wept. And as he went, thus he said, O oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would God that I had died for you, O oh, Absalom, my son, my son. This is why I understand David loved his son, did not want this consequence for his action. He was willing to put up with Absalom being a thorn in his side or even living in exile if that's what it took because he understood God's heart toward Absalom. Absalom has no chance to repent, no chance to get right with God at this point unless he gets right while he's hanging on a tree. But David weeps. And this is where we're going to leave it and we're going to see that this weeping is going to affect his people and his army. You know, they're not going to understand David's attitude toward this. They've just conquered the enemy. They defeated the, the opposing king. And David's weeping and wishing that he was dead instead. So who is this Cushai? He's just some guy that showed up? I mean, he's not listed. He's not we don't know anything about him. That's just it. He is just a messenger? random soldier, a messenger, a servant of Joab uh, that was sent to give the message. Might have been a servant of Joab. Yeah. You know, say, here, here's a message for you. 
nobody really knows who he is. He was just a messenger. He could have been a runner. There were the, the fast men in the army were usually chosen for messengers to run, run messages back and forth. So he could have been one of the army's messengers. Could have just been somebody that he chose out of the blue that he didn't care about. If you, you're going to give this message to David and when he chops your head off, I don't care. Uh, we don't know. There's not much there to tell us. But this guy's giving David a message that he seems to think is good news. David could have had his head cut off or slain, just like he did the messengers that came with him at the death of Saul. Uh, it doesn't tell us that he did this. Now, that doesn't mean he didn't do it. It just means the Bible doesn't say that anything happened to this man. I think it's just neat how they do use like, that name and you never really see it again. Because they have a lot of times just a name and you don't have. Well, it also tells us that God will use anybody insignificant and just throw their name out there. You never hear about them before or after. And I love this about God. He uses anybody. When you think about this, he used David. What was David before he started? He was a shepherd. Had no money, had no wealth, didn't even have skills in leading people. Who was Saul before he was picked? Just a, just a farmer, very tall farmer, good-looking farmer that was described to us. You know, who was Abraham? Well, he got to be pretty famous, but when God picked him, he was a nobody. Not even the oldest in his family, as far as we know. He was just picked out and said, I'm going to, okay, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. Yeah. Jesus picked out 12 men that weren't phenomenal men. They had all kinds of problems, especially Peter. You know, everybody talks about Peter. He had, he had a major disease, foot and mouth disease. He always put his foot in his mouth, no matter what he did, and yet God used him in great ways. You know, and I love that as we read through the Bible. How many people did God use that were nobodies? I think of the little girl who told her master, you know, who had leprosy, you know, hey, if you just go see the, the prophet in Israel, you can be healed of leprosy. We don't even know her name. All we know is that she was a young, young slave girl that had been captured and was able to stand up for God. These are the wonderful things we look at. God has great blessings and he uses the weak. He uses the people who think, who think of themselves insignificantly. It's been said that God does not call the, the strong, he strengthens those that he calls. And I've seen that happen over and over. God has taken some people that I've looked at and gone, God, how can you, you you're using that person to lead that ministry? That person? You know, they couldn't even talk in front of a group, and you, you got them talking in front of huge crowds. God, that person, they, they couldn't organize their own room, and now you're using them to organize a ministry? You know, we don't know all of what God does, but he will give us the skills and the strength. And why does he do that? Because he wants to be lifted up. He doesn't want us lifting ourselves up. <laughs> you know, God, you're just so glad. You're just so lucky to have me. If you, if you didn't have me, none of this would accomplish. And God said, no. He's not going to allow that to happen. So he takes those who don't have any great skills and uses them. And you know, this is the fun thing when you look at, at how God uses each one of us. I've seen this happen over and over again. God using people that you know, you look at them and go, "Wow, God, this person, that person." And it's fun. It's fun when somebody feels like they're called for God and say, "All right, here you go." I love to see how God's going to use those kind of people.
oh God, I, I want to be somebody important. And God says, nope, you're not, you're, not, you're, not, you're not the one I want. I want this person that's humble and just wants to do something. This person who just wants to serve. And he lifts them up and gives them skills. Because hopefully they'll stay humble. Saul did not stay humble. You know, Saul started out being humble. He was hiding in the baggage car when they were looking for him. You know, he did not want to be king. Didn't take him long to get proud. David is showing great humility here. If God, if you want Absalom to rule, I'll let him rule. But you know, if you want me to rule, I'm, I'll just wait for you to take Absalom out. And that's where he's at. He's very humble, very quiet. And usually when people are humble and being raised by God, they don't like the publicity they get. You know, uh, when they become a, you know, and I've heard this many times, and I've even met many of these guys, but the guys I listen to on the radio, they can get some notoriety as a teacher. Most of them don't really feel like they deserve it. You know, they're going, God, why me? You know, I'm just a nobody and you've raised me up. And that's something that's very important for us to understand. How will God use us? Who knows? Who knows? He will lift us up beyond anything that we're capable of doing because it's his power, his strength that allows it. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for how much you love and care for us. We ask you to go with us and guide us. Show us everything you would like us to do. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.